the first image of Beatrice dressed in drappo sanguigno, I mean this deep red dress which is ominous naturally of a future of love. Terraced hilltops and the scent of almonds. Still heat, silence for miles around, sliced through only by the occasional moped motor, or a dog barking, or the sound of doves, or hummingbirds and wood pigeons. Green lizards lie baking on rocks. Everywhere there are close-set silver-leafed olive trees, and beneath them, scarlet poppies and wild rose bushes. Black grapes and red gold peaches are ripening in the sun. And above, the sky is as blue and as clear as the Virgin's eyes. Truly, for some, this was paradise on earth. Florence itself, I think, is the most beautiful city I ever saw. It is surrounded with cultivated hills, and from the bridge, which crosses the broad channel of the Arno, the view is the most animated and elegant I ever saw. You see three or four bridges, one apparently supported by Corinthian pillars and the white sails of the boats relieved by the deep green of the forest which comes to the water's edge, and then the sloping hills covered with bright villas on every side. Domes and steeples rise on all sides, and on the other bank are the foldings of the Vale of Arno above, first the hills of olive and vine, then the chestnut woods, and then the blue and misty pine forests. I have seldom seen a city so lovely at first sight as Florence. Shelley, heart-stopped by his first sight of the city, sent a letter to Bagni di Luca to his wife Mary, enticing her to come and live in Florence, falling in love with a view. High on these terraced hills, the air is cooler, and below, the city lies clear and steady, sure of its place. To the left of the terrace, the grapes are black and ripe, Beyond these, lining the horizon, are the even blacker cypress trees, as old as the Roman footfalls. Much newer, though, are the villas, white and pink, lying in against the hills, modelled on the original Medici villa, all new, pretending to be old. On the terrace of one of those villas, a peacock stands, lost in the middle of a family of doves. He opens his glorious tail, all turquoise and jade, like a young girl fanning herself. On the hilltop terrace, time is lost. And as his tail spreads forwards and back, the eye moves down the valley to the Arno, and behind that to Brunelleschi's great dome. Florence is once again Dante's town.
Um, here we are in front of this uh, nice fake, nice medieval fake, which is the Casa di Dante. I don't know how many tourists coming here realize that it, this is not the uh, actual Casa di Dante, the house of Dante. The house of Dante got destroyed, probably was nothing remarkable, uh, certainly not so castle-like like this one, but the area is correct. The area is the area in the very heart of ancient Florence where the uh, home of Dante existed and very, very close to the church where he uh, met Beatrice and in the very heart of the ancient uh, city of Florence. Mainly the topography is authentic. I mean, these streets, these narrow streets, these very small squares, and this sense of labyrinthic town is Florence the way it used to be in the Middle Ages. Here we are, here we are, it's just very, very close. This is the um, church of Santa Margherita. This is the church where Dante met Beatrice and would meet Beatrice, like he says in the uh, uh, Vitanova, in the little book that he wrote. He wrote, I mean, he put together the, the, uh, the poems he had written for Beatrice after her death. So Vitanova, we could uh, translate uh, something like uh, the portrait of, uh, of the poet as a young man, as a young man in love. And the church, naturally, in the Vitanova, uh, plays uh, quite a relevant uh, role because this was uh, one of the few places where young men and young women could meet and look at each other and uh, flirt. And this is the church probably where instead Dante married Gemma Donati, the mother of his uh, son. So this is the, uh, truly, I mean correctly, so the church of Dante. church of Margarita di Cerchi, the organist stops practicing. He sits in silence, occasionally turning the pages of his sheet music. The church is tiny and very modest, except for the garish murals of Dante and Beatrice, like a schoolgirl's drawings of a love affair. In one, the little girl Beatrice, wearing her red dress, smiles at a small, serious boy, Dante. And nearby there were also the houses, the case of the Portinari family to which Beatrice belonged. She was a Portinari, which was a very prominent family in Florence, much more prominent than the uh, Alighieri. She married very well uh, to Simone de Bardi from another prominent uh, family. And also in the church, so-called Church of Dante, there is the, um, the tombstone of a um, uh, saint who happened to be the governess of Beatrice's family. And uh, it, was a very, it was a very pious family, apparently. The father of Beatrice, Fulco, founded the first hospital in Florence, which is now the Hospital of Santa Maria Nova, still functioning, I mean, naturally, different from what it used to be, and naturally at walk distance from here. And uh, the uh, street in front of the hospital is entitled to Folco Portinari, the father of Beatrice. Beatrice is an unlikely Italian, not sallow and brown, but seen as blonde with dark green eyes, wearing a scarlet dress like the poppies in the fields. 
In dreams, while Dante lies sleeping, Cupid takes out his heart and feeds it to Beatrice. In real life, she merely ignored him and married someone else. Beautiful, angel-like, humble Beatrice, for centuries a model of ideal womanhood, pure, untouched, leading Dante towards paradise and into the face of God. That type of love, which we could consider romantic love, courtly love, courtly love excluded marriage. It was very clear that marriage belonged to another type of affection, but romantic love, including desire, erotic desire, was another type of experience, was courtly love. So, potentially an adulterous love. The fact is that Dante inherited this tradition of courtly love, spiritualized it, and so his link with Beatrice was never erotic, but transformed himself from first, let's say, uh, infatuation to a lifelong devotion. And so Beatrice becomes, I mean, evolves in Dante's imagination from the little girl who struck his imagination when they were kids to the lady who, in paradise, leads him in front of God. That was his invention. This glad union had made it morning there and evening here. Our hemisphere was dark while all the mountains bathed in white. When I saw Beatrice turned round, facing left, her eyes raised to the sun. No eagle ever could stare so fixed and straight into such light. As one descending ray of light will cause a second one to rise back up again, just as a pilgrim yearns to go back home, so, like a ray, her act poured through my eyes, into my mind, and gave rise to my own. I stared straight at the sun as no man could. In that place first created for mankind, much more is granted to the human senses than ever was allowed them here on earth. I could not look for long, but my eyes saw the sun enclosed in blazing sparks of light, like molten iron as it pours from the fire. And suddenly... It was as if one day shone on the next, as if the one who could had decked the heavens with a second sun. And Beatrice stood there, her eyes fixed on the eternal spheres, entranced, and now my eyes, withdrawn from high, were fixed on her. Here in 1819, uh, just for one year after being in Bagno di Luca before going to Venice, the uh, Florentine year was kind of a happy one for them too, I have to say. I mean, after all, their son, uh, one of their children was born here, uh, Percy Florence. And uh, he was the only one who survived, by the way, you know, their numerous uh, children here, she, Mary, um, started to write Valpurga, one of her uh, stories, and naturally there is the Ode to the Western. Uh, when it's a more romantic experience. Probably uh, Italy is more a Byronian place than of uh, passion and uh, poison and contrast and blood and 
in fury. <laughs> but it was certainly a powerful image. Florence um, did not play the, the role for the uh, very nervous uh, Shelley's biography that Florence played for the uh, Brownings. It couldn't give them the peace and tranquility and love that it did for the, uh, for the Brownings. But certainly it is part of a, an Italian experience for them too. If I were a dead leaf thou mightest bear, if I were a swift cloud to fly with thee, a wave to pant beneath thy power and share the impulse of thy strength, only less free than thou, O uncontrollable. If even I were as in my boyhood and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven, as then when to outstrip thy skyey speed scarce seemed a vision, I would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore need. O oh, lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. A heavy weight of ours has chained and bowed. One too like thee, tameless and swift and proud. Florence was not quite the paradise for Shelley as first imagined. Walking in the Castine, the great park west of Florence, composing ode to the west wind amid his anger and disappointment as the rain washed the earth and leaves beneath his feet, but always chasing words and echoing the rhythms of a long-dead poet. There could actually be in the place where so much of the literature they loved had been created and taken uh, place. Uh, to, to walk on the, on the same stones that Dante had walked on, to touch the same walls that Michelangelo had looked at. Th this idea of, of uh, Italy as the theater, but a tangible one, a surviving one of a great art from the past, that was truly an immense, an immense attraction uh, for them. But I think this was um, just one aspect of a whole uh, legend or mythology about, uh, about Italy. Italy was probably seen, and you can see that in the Victorian novels, as the place where a more instinctive, a more natural, more passionate, more authentic life could be lived. And that's why the Brownings are so symbolic, because Elizabeth was seeking not only health in Florence, not only liberty, freedom from uh, her uh, family. This is the place of love for her. Not long married, dizzy from her escape, Elizabeth would sit at her window, marveling at views that before she could only have imagined. From the days of Dante and before, Florence had been a city fueled by politics as well as art. During their first autumn here, from their window, the Brownings watched long political processions on their way to the Pitti Palace, and she wrote of the grave men who kissed one another, and the grateful young women who lifted their children in the air, and of these children who mixed their shrill little vivas with the shouts of the people, and how everyone waved white handkerchiefs in the air and how flowers and laurel leaves floated down onto the heads of the passers-by. 
Like Elizabeth, many came to Florence attracted to its passion and difference, seeking freedom, the view always promising more than what was really possible. Like Elizabeth, others came to Florence to be saved from the diseases of their dark, dank countries, but found that the cruel Florentine climate killed more than it cured. Just outside the old walls of Florence is the Protestant graveyard. Once sheltered by the old city walls, it now stands isolated, little more than a traffic island on a busy motorway. Elizabeth Barrett Browning lies here, alone without her husband Robert, in a grey casket above the ground, flanked by box hedges. But that is her death. Inside, when the city walls still stood, she survived 14 Florentine winters, falling in love with life and with Italy. I heard last night a little child go singing neath Casa Guidi windows by the church. O oh, bella libertà, O oh, bella. Stringing the same words still on notes he went in search so high for, you concluded the upbringing of such a nimble bird to sky from perch must leave the whole bush in a tremble green, and that the heart of Italy must beat, while such a voice had leave to rise serene twixt church and palace of a Florence street. So this is Casa Guidi in uh, Oltrarno at uh, one of the most beautiful crossings that you can find in uh, Florence between Via Maggio. Um, Casa Guidi is naturally the place where the Brownings lived their happy, very happy married life since they moved here in uh, 1846 until she died here and he went back to uh, England. This is the place where their only son, their only child, was uh, born. This is the place where they wrote their best known and prob probably most beautiful um, poems. And naturally, you cannot look at the uh, yellowish facade of Casa Guidi without, and the windows of Casa Guidi without remembering the Casa, Casa Guidi windows, the uh, poem that uh, Elizabeth wrote in uh, 51, supporting the cause of uh, Italian uh, independence struggle for unity and uh, independence. The uh, British expatriate looks out of the windows of Casa Guidi and cordially uh, endorses the, uh, the cause of her Italian friends and um, patriots. But this is also the facade in front of which, uh, according to the biographers, a very lovely anecdote took place when Elizabeth slipped in the uh, pocket of her uh, husband a piece of paper. And uh, this uh, piece of paper happened to be one of her uh, famous uh, sonnets from the Portuguese, the one who starts, uh, How do I love thee? How do I love thee? So it was truly a mention of love, uh, poetry, and this is also where uh, Robert wrote The Ring, among other things. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. 
I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach, when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Thirty years earlier, Mary Shelley came to Florence, enticed by a view described in a letter. She came with her husband and her half-sister Claire, all tangled up together, Mary pregnant again after the death of her three little children. And as she waited anxiously for life, her husband walked the wet woods of the Cascine and sat in sun-faded corners of the Ricardiana Library, home of the original works of Dante, Paradise, Purgatory and the inferno which doomed lovers to the second circle of hell. The desire is always delayed, the desire is never fulfilled, and that's why it lasts forever. <laughs> and, and, and this is also the reason of the opposition, which is open in the uh, culture of the Middle Ages between marriage and courtly love. I mean, Andrea Capellano, the th uh, most famous theorist of courtly love in the Middle Ages, puts it down in a very uh, in very basic terms he says I mean when uh, love becomes a commodity of every day uh, in marriage I mean uh, romance is over <laughs> and and instead call to love is supposed to tease and to you know excite mutual attraction between the lovers forever exactly because it is not legalized exactly it, it, it is free and uh, uh, potentially illegal, illegal. But Dante condemns this kind of courtly love in the uh, Divine Comedy in the fifth uh, canto of Inferno in the couple of Paolo and Francesca. So he detaches him from this more secular, let's say, and potentially adulterous and sinful version of courtly love, and he evolves courtly love. He pushes courtly love from this kind of uh, cultural pattern into a much more original and really of his own, which is the spiritual one. At a certain point, uh, this uh, uh, very special relationships evolves in a spiritual patronage of the woman over the man. Then turning, I to them my speech addressed, and thus began, Francesca, your sad fate even to tears my grief and pity moves. But tell me, in the time of your sweet sighs, by what and how love granted that ye knew your yet uncertain wishes? She replied, No greater grief than to remember days of joy when misery is at hand. That kens thy learned instructor, Yet so eagerly, if thou art bent to know the primal root from whence our love gat being, I will do as one who weeps and tells his tale. One day, for our delight, we read of Lancelot, how him love thralled. 
alone we were, and no suspicion near us. Oft times, by that reading, our eyes were drawn together, and the hue fled from our altered cheek. But at one point, alone we fell, when of that smile we read, the wished smile so rapturously kissed by one so deep in love. Then he, who ne'er from me shall separate, at once my lips all trembling kissed. The book and writer both were love's purveyors. In its leaves that day we read no more. While thus one spirit spake, the other wailed so sorely that heart-struck I, through compassion fainting, seemed not far from death, and like a corpse fell to the ground. The fact is that Dante in the, uh, in the Inferno renounces in that canto, which is a very, a very problematic canto for him, because it has to renounce there not just illicit sex, which would be quite banal, but courtly love. So it's not a question just of, you know, uh, free love. It's a question of a whole culture, of a whole tradition of, especially literary figures, famous couples from antiquity, he mentions not only Paolo e Francesca, but uh, Paris, uh, uh, Tristan, and all the great lovers of antiquity. All those loves and the beautiful literature attached to it must be renounced. So that's why at the end of the canto, Dante faints. And as the wind blew colder, the rain fell heavier and frost-coated the window of their small apartment. Claire played snowballs with Italian children, but Mary, knowing that Shelley grew weaker as January grew colder, moved all three of them and their new baby to Pisa, never to return. As delicate as the fair hair of Fra Angelica's Jesus, as pure as the beaten gold of the baptistry doors, as gentle as the yellow flowers that carpet Botticelli's Primavera, and soft like the flanks of the Medici Venus in the Uffizi, soft and bright, gentle and pure, like a warm brown woman. Florence may have made love to the Brownings, but under the shadow of the dome, less gentle moments stirred. Frida, the wife of D.H. Lawrence, felt the city's less female side. She thought the place a fierce male citadel, a city full of statues of men celebrating the glory of the male body. And sculptor Wetmore took notes of the Medici exhumation in San Lorenzo. In their chapel, underneath the sculptures of Michelangelo and the marble floor, piled against the door, they found the 49 Medici corpses, putrid, plundered, and stolen. Silver crucifixes taken from their black parchment necks and ruby rings pulled from the finger bones of their cardinals. Only two lay serene, as if in sleep, a mother and daughter in red silk dress and stockings, beaded jewels still entwined in their thin golden hair, preserved in death because poisoned in life and the bright-eyed writer George Eliot, all fired up with love for the monk Savonarola, 
who burnt at the stake for his violent impulses. An epileptic Dostoevsky and his pregnant wife, penniless, living in a tiny hot room above the market. Italy was a place where these uh, people would come to terms with their inner demons or, or angels, at least with their instincts, and liberate themselves and feel that certain feelings and uh, aspirations and goals could be possible under this sky and not elsewhere. And that happens with the actual writers and with the protagonists of their novels. The, the, the girl of Room with a View, she uh, realizes here that there is uh, much more to life than she thinks. When she comes down and she witnesses this act of violence in the very Piazza della Signoria, and naturally she has a very, not only squeamish, but dramatic uh, reaction, not because of the blood, but because of the open violence of this uh, episode. It is because, yes, Italy is a place with sometimes no manners, and that people do not keep their violence or their passion for themselves. They are able to express them. E.M. Forster hid behind the curls of Lucy Honeychurch, him all hesitant and bullied, emboldening in her all the energy and desire he so wished to take from Italy. to me. She, Lucy Honeychurch, reflected as she entered the Piazza Signoria and looked nonchalantly at its marvels, now fairly familiar to her. The great square was in shadow. The sunshine had come too late to strike it. Neptune was already unsubstantial in the twilight, half god, half ghost, and his fountain plashed dreamily to the men and satyrs who idled together on its marge. The loggia showed as the triple entrance of a cave wherein dwelt many a deity, shadowy but immortal, looking forth upon the arrivals and departures of mankind. It was the hour of unreality, the hour, that is, when unfamiliar things are real. An older person at such an hour and in such a place might think that sufficient was happening to him and rest content. Lucy desired more. She fixed her eyes wistfully on the tower of the palace, which rose out of the lower darkness like a pillar of roughened gold. Its brightness mesmerized her, still dancing before her eyes when she bent them to the ground and started towards home. Then something did happen. Two Italians by the loggia had been bickering about a debt. Cinque lire, they had cried. Cinque lire! They sparred at each other, and one of them was hit lightly upon the chest. 
He frowned. He bent towards Lucy with a look of interest, as if he had an important message for her. He opened his lips to deliver it, and a stream of red came out between them and trickled down his unshaven chin. But Lucy Honeychurch remembers a kiss on a Tuscan hill in the heat, stolen and sudden. And she doesn't recognise uh, then that scene of violence or that kiss, first of all, are related. They are related. And then that, no, she's not made for that kind of, of life. But it's like a seed. Italy works like a seed inside her, like truly a view from the window, which she uh, ignores or tries to ignore at first, but then comes back. Because once that you have tasted life, life, true life, authentic life, you cannot go back to the fake life of the upper class. Well, the view is there. The room is not there anymore in Florence because the Pensione Bartolini, where the, uh, our, our protagonist stayed, is, has been destroyed. Uh, and actually, the movie was filmed in another hotel, uh, Porta Rossa in Florence, which is a very uh, suggestive hotel, but not the original. Not the original. The view is the view towards the banks, the bank of the uh, Arno near the uh, Uffizia place, which is now is uh, totally occupied by tourists. But uh, but naturally, the idea is, is this. I mean, the room with the view, it's not only the room with that, on, a, on a beautiful river and naturally Ponte Vecchio, etc. It's truly a sort of epiphany of another type of life. If Lucy could look out at her view now, she would see busloads of tourists in jeans and baseball hats crowding the Ponte Vecchio and huge queues forming from early hours outside the Uffizi Gallery. The Piazza della Signoria is full of hordes of teenagers on continental school tours, drinking Coca-Cola under the legs of David. Around Brunelleschi's dome, painters shout at you to let them draw your caricature and shout at you more if you ignore them. Behind those are stalls full of tiny plastic domes, Dante keyrings, and posters of the blonde angel of the late 20th century, Leonardo DiCaprio. And at Giberti's baptistry door, street traders try to sell mechanical dolls that dance flamenco and toy soldiers that crawl on their bellies. I think that a good experience for anybody coming to Florence would be not to follow the guide and go from one monument to the other, but just get lost in the uh, very heart of town. And uh, you can, at random, this way, uh, truly uh, taste the flavor of not only more authentic sometimes Florence, less touristic maybe, less flooded with tourists and human bodies, but also to get the uh, sense of what the travelers from last century, for example, or from the beginning of this century were looking for in uh, Florence, this sense of authenticity and the continuity of common life from uh, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance and modern times. The city, tired and disappointing, full of queues and barriers and expensive ticket prices, no longer the place where writers can sit and dream with Dante. 
but all the time people are sustained by the view, that wonderful view, and all you can invest in it. One might say that there is also a misunderstanding. Did those people actually know the real Florence? How the real Florence reacted towards them? Probably uh, we might also talk about a missed encounter. It is true that Florence is a reserved town which does not allow so easily to be known and possessed by the others. I'm not saying that this is negative. This is uh, by now a very interesting uh, chapter of Florentine history and Florentine life. And it is, after all, a chapter of a uh, long love story between uh, foreign visitors and uh, Florence. There is no love story without uh, projection. You project on the object of your love the qualities and sometimes the uh, story you desire. So Florence becomes uh, in the hands of uh, these visitors not a reality to be known the way it is, but sometimes an object of uh, desire and a fantasy. And from the villa on the terraced hilltop overlooking Florence, the city looks as mysterious and as innocent as an angel's wing. From this distance, all the passion and dreams of the past are still alive. Dante gazing at Beatrice while Mass is being said. Milton and Galileo talking in a dusk-filled garden. Henry James admiring Donatello's slim David. Thomas Hardy sketching the ruins of the Roman amphitheatre. D. H. Lawrence watching the bright glow from the lanterned boats as they sailed along the dark green waters of the Arno.